Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is an alternatives view and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Bernie McNamara, head of Alternatives Investment Strategy and Solutions, and I will be your moderator for today's episode, the latest in a series about J.P. Morgan Asset Management's Annual Long-Term Capital Market Assumptions, or LTCMAs. The LTCMAs are our long-term forecasts that we've released annually for 22 years, now encompassing 50-plus asset and strategy classes and available in 13 base currencies. Investors and advisors use the LTCMAs to inform their strategic asset allocations and to establish reasonable expectations for risks and returns over 10 to 15 years. Today, we'll be focusing on our long-term outlook for a range of alternative categories. Joining me for our discussion are Anthony Worley, Chief Portfolio Strategist for our Endowments and Foundations Group, and Anton Pill, Managing Partner, J.P. Morgan Global Alternatives. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Nice to be here, Bernie. Great to be here. Tony, I think it's fair to say that your outlook for alternatives over the next 10 to 15 years is broadly positive. Yet with a few exceptions, the long-term return expectations are flat to down. I think 11 of 16 categories are flat to down. Can you comment on that, maybe in the context of what's happening with your outlook for a 60-40 portfolio or the broader secular trends that inform this year's assumptions? I think that's right, Bernie. There's a host of reasons why the alternative assumptions are on the margin more attractive versus the year before, but they are absolutely more attractive versus a stock bond combination. In the case of hedge funds, for example, the broadening opportunity set, the reduction in fees, which is a direct attribution to additional alpha, is one of the key drivers there. In the case of private equity, it's the expansion of the opportunity set outside of the United States. Relatively speaking, alternative strategies, whether they're financial strategies or real asset strategies, are marginally more attractive than a stock bond combination. It sounds like particularly relative to the stock bond mix. In other words, the assumptions may be flat to down, but by comparison on a premium basis. That's right. Even as some of the assumptions in the alternative space are flat, if you have a declining public market assumption for equities right there alone, you have a better relative case to be made for alternatives. Sure. And Anton, are we seeing that in client conversations, more interest, more activity, higher allocations coming to the alternative space? Yeah, look, I think we're definitely seeing a higher degree of interest, especially in the last 12 months as global liquidity is shrinking, led by the U.S. markets. We are beginning to see a renewed interest in a lot of different pockets in across alternatives, not just as a diversifier for lowering portfolio volatility, But frankly, because now, as Tony points out, some of these sub-asset classes may actually outperform on a relative basis some of the public markets where potentially returns are somewhat lower. Tony, hedge funds in particular, again, appear to be a bright spot, have an improving outlook for most types. Diversified hedge funds up 75 basis points, long bias, macro also up. You attribute that to a clearly better operating environment going forward, but maybe a little bit more context on that statement. Bernie, I think one of the most substantial changes year over year is the withdrawal of the central banks around the world and risk-off, risk-on strategy and just the flood of liquidity to a more fundamentally driven environment. 
And that fundamentally driven environment should allow both longs as well as shorts to be able to contribute to alpha. And I think when you look at hedge funds, particularly event-driven and equity long bias as well as relative value, that's a clear case that the fundamentals are increasingly driving returns as opposed to risk-on, risk-off, liquidity-driven market. That's not the case in macro, where macro has the double headwind of not only additional monies in the space chasing the same goods, essentially, but also the fact that to go short bonds and have negative carry, which has been the mainstay of macro returns for many, many years, looks like it's not going to be near as productive as the past. Consequently, that's the only reduction in absolute returns that we've made for hedge funds this year. Well, interestingly enough, Tony, I think there's been two other things that are taking place in the marketplace that I think are quite favorable for hedge funds. One, obviously, increased volatility has uh, right. sort of that dispersion amongst whether it's different stocks or different relative value ideas has definitely widened as volatility is picking up in the broader public markets. Now, secondly, I think the other trend that continues to evolve is the growth of passive investors and passive indexation. And ironically, the more money that moves into passive indexation, I think it'll actually allow active management and hedge funds in particular to potentially have a broader opportunity set as fewer investors or some investors just sort of go to all across indices and aren't really paying attention to relative value that potentially may increase the relative value opportunities for the alt space. Anton, I think you make a very key point, whether you're talking about hedge funds or private equity or real estate, it's less about the asset allocation and increasingly about the selection of the manager. And so whenever we talk about these strategies, the dispersion of return, the dispersional manager's return of the composite is always accompanying any single point number that we had. Because in fact, dispersion of return remains quite, quite wide despite the market conditions over the last five or 10 or 15 years plus. And on that topic, moving to private equities, Tony, return assumptions down a little bit this year from 8% last year to seven and a quarter. Does that imply again, a diminishing premium versus public equity markets? Or has that remained wide or even widened? Yeah, that observation on the surface is exactly right. It looks like it's a downgrade of the return opportunity set. In fact, it's a relative upgrade versus your public market options. We're looking for large capitalization managers, which are 70% or so of all the assets in the space, to actually produce a return about 2% above U.S. large cap, and that's an upgrade from the year before. And part of that is driven from the fact that we see an increasing international beta in these managers, and of that international beta, an increasing component is actually in the emerging markets, which you would primarily define as India and China. So as these opportunity sets increase and the underlying beta of international markets, particularly emerging markets, is higher, you can see a greater premium versus the traditional return pattern, which is U.S. mid-cap and U.S. large-cap equity. Right. Actually, our experience has been fairly consistent outperformance across public equities, but not so much driven from a cyclicality standpoint, I think really driven by operational improvements in the underlying companies. And I think as you think about private equity investing, you know, different people have different sort of nuances on how they try to add returns over public markets. Uh, one thing we have found is that there's a stability in sort of operational improvements in terms of how much return that can be generated. And it's remarkably 
less sensitive to rates and, and sort of the economic cycles because you're really focusing on improving what's happening at a company-less specific level. And that makes that return volatility actually lower than one might think of in a normal cyclical context. Another key point, the, the case for beta migration to offshore is all about the average manager, but the operational improvements that accrue to the top quartile is all about EBITDA improvement. So again, average versus best execution is about beta versus alpha, and your case for alpha based on cash flow improvement is simply what private equity is all about. Yeah, so Tony, a lot of dry powder, you know, on the order of $1.8 trillion, much of it focused at the large mega end of the spectrum. What does that mean for private equity investing going forward? We have, in the capital markets assumptions for the last 15 years, been talking about the corrosive effect of large amounts of money going into the private equity space. And in fact, recently we've seen a number as large as $1.8 trillion of dry powder. The offset to that is, of course, that the international markets offer an opportunity set that is at least as large as the United States. And so when you look at the amount of dry powder that's out there, it is no longer just focused on U.S. mid-cap or U.S. large-cap. It's focused on the global opportunity set, and that, in effect, doubles the potential for returns or the potential for investment from what you've had literally only five or six years ago. Moving to private credit or direct lending, essentially private loans to middle market corporations, seen a lot of capital flowing into that space. Tony, you've raised your long-term assumptions for direct lending to 7% up from six and three quarters last year. What's behind that marginal improvement? Where do you see that space moving? It is a marginal improvement. I think that's a key way to start out the conversation. The starting yields were really the driver behind that upgrade. And at the same time, we saw no degradation in the credit worthiness or certainly not the default rate. And so it was really a minor change based upon the going in yield, if you will. I think private debt is one area that as we're already thinking about the 2019 capital markets assumptions is most likely for a downgrade in return expectations. Less from what we have in hand in terms of credit situations and much, much more so the amount of money that's flowing into the space, the terms are getting much more borrower friendly, and consequently, the starting yields are going to have a downgrade. And so I think this is one area where when you look out longer term and see the amount of interest in the space, the amount of money in the space, you are likely to see much more of a reversion to the mean versus what your public options are. Tony, I think you're optimistic. I'm much more pessimistic on this space. I think that the amount of money that's flowed into it has indeed lowered people's credit standards. I think if you see the premium you get today in private credit versus public high yield, that frankly, you should stay in public high yield and maybe give up a little bit in return, but try to bank on some of that liquidity. I am very worried that a lot of people who invested in private credit, whether it be direct lending or other sectors, have only ever seen the upside of this asset class. And it's been great as long as the fault rates stay low, the US economy grows, the rates stay low. It's sort of a great panacea for a lot of people. But once rates rise, default rates start picking up and any sort of slowdown in the economy, I feel like this market is sort of overdue for some form of correction. Now, it's hard to know when that occurs, yeah. to your point, but that's something that 
is much more worrisome from where I sit. Sure. Yeah, Tony, Anton mentioned the comparison versus high yield. If you look at that premium in our long-term capital market assumptions, last year about 1%, this year one and three quarters. Is that too optimistic? Does Anton have a case here? I think Anton certainly has a strong case, but the underwriting track record of the privates, even though it's not been tested as the long-term high-yield market has, would say that a premium in terms of underwriting standards makes some sense. But again, walls of cash are often very, very corrosive. So I would say that the case is leaning increasingly towards your point of view. But then again, let's not forget high yield and even leveraged loans have not been friendly on the covenant side of things as well. And so there's a broad-based deterioration, you could say, of which maybe the greatest wall of cash is in the private sector, and that might be due for the greatest downgrade. Yeah, I actually totally agree with that. And at the end, what you just mentioned, Bernie, is a sort of 175 I actually, in my mind, the number's closer to two. I think if you can pick up 2% and you get some form of protection in the private markets, it's probably worth doing. Real assets, starting with real estate in particular. So here, Tony, return expectations have been trimmed, I would say, only modestly versus last year on the order of 25 to 50 basis points, despite the fact that I think most would acknowledge that we are in a more mature part of at least the U.S. real estate cycle. But you remain broadly positive on real assets generally, real estate in particular. What's driving that optimism? Bertie, you're absolutely right that the cap rates of central business district, gateway cities, high-quality buildings are not cheap versus history. But what's been really unusual this cycle is the discipline, the development discipline, the supply discipline. And that's, of course, been occasioned by regulators putting the thumbs on financial institutions and bank lending generally. But you really have seen a very, very slow supply response, as you might have in previous cycles. And that's really the main reason for relative optimism in the real estate space. Now, also, returns were not that good the previous year. And so if the fundamentals have a long-term equilibrium to them and cash flows have not driven up prices much year over year, we're going to essentially maintain that return outlook. And again, surprisingly enough, the 2019 capital markets assumptions, we still don't see much of a supply discipline breakdown. We don't see much of a cap going in yield, going in cap rate change year over year. And so we might not be surprised to see a similar number again next year. I think that's right. I mean, we hear that real estate feels expensive, right? But I think the important question is expensive versus what? Is it, for example, core real estate, those you know best properties in the best locations? Are they expensive versus themselves and the opportunities that we're seeing immediately after the financial crisis? I think the answer there is yes, but are they expensive, for example, relative to fixed income? If you look at the return spread or return premium that core real estate is delivering versus various forms of fixed income, whether it's 10-year treasury, triple B, high-yield bonds, in comparison to what they were delivering versus 2007, say at the prior peak of the real estate market before the financial crisis, The punchline there is that this is not 2007. Return spreads are much healthier now, implying that real estate investors are still being compensated fairly and on a relative basis. Yeah, I think you guys are both right. I think the supply story has kept real estate prices from 
sort of reaching those heady levels that we've seen before. But I, I think there's another trend going on in real estate that I wouldn't underestimate. Real estate is finally globalizing. So you're seeing Americans for the first time buy Asian core real estate, buy European core real estate, and vice versa. You're seeing Asian clients looking at investing in the U.S. And historically, that's been much more on an opportunistic basis. But we're beginning to see that that is being viewed as a proxy for more fixed income-like assets with a form of inflation protection from the real corpus of the money that was invested in the building in the first place. And I think that trend is going to continue. And that may result in structurally lower cap rates for much longer. And therefore, sort of the notion that there has to be some sort of increase in cap rates, I think if people are waiting for that, they may just never get it. Right. Bernie, I think your point is a good one, that it's a globally integrated investment opportunity set. And as rates are lower for longer, the spread that this going in rate offers you in core real estate is still relatively attractive. On top of that, Anton mentioned the globalization of returns. And so you're going to see increasingly the opportunity set in Asia. If it's going to be eroded, it will look in the United States and it doesn't matter what the nature of the money is, it will find its most attractive home. But last but not least, if you remember at the peak of the last cycle, we had core funds that were levered 60 and 65%. Today, those same type of funds are levered 20 and 25%. So the idea that the downside is a little bit less because of supply discipline and the selling pressures are a little bit less because leverage is quite contained, again, creates a relatively attractive opportunity set versus what your other public market fixed income and equity options are. That's a good point, actually. This leverage notion, I think, in real estate is underappreciated. I think once you're sort of past that 30 40% leverage mark on real estate, you start losing the benefits and characteristics of real estate in a portfolio. It starts looking much more like a levered risk asset. And I think we often have a tendency when we think of our own mortgages and look at real estate that, you know, it should be highly levered. And often cases that's correct for opportunistic real estate. But for more core-like real estate, having that lower leverage does provide a very interesting income stream that has generally historically been quite uncorrelated to a number of asset classes. And so you mentioned opportunistic strategies. We have heard from a number of investors that, well, core returns have moderated of late, which is true. 2016, 2017, those were the first two years that the U.S. Core Fund Real Estate Index didn't deliver double-digit returns since the financial crisis. And so we hear from a lot of investors, I got used to those returns. Now that Core is back to delivering what we would argue it's designed to deliver, which is a 6 to 8% with moderate leverage, now I need to move out the risk spectrum to more value-add, more opportunistic What's your view on how that plays, particularly as we're later in the cycle? Yeah, that is a worrying trend that we did see last year. It seems to be reversing a little bit this year. This notion that if I'm going to own real estate, I might as well buy opportunistic because then at least I can continue on getting my double-digit returns. I think the challenge with that is that if you go back historically and you compare open or sort of core with opportunistic managers, what you will find is that in the last two decades, opportunistic managers have outperformed only a handful of times, I believe it was three or four times in the last 20 years over a core manager. And ultimately, opportunistic makes sense at a very, very specific point in this cycle. 
And that point in the cycle is usually not if you're worried about real estate being at its peak. It's actually most often if real estate is at its sort of bottom that you want to be opportunistic. So I am a little bit concerned that people are leveraging up at exactly the wrong point of the cycle. And now is the time to kind of pull back, use less leverage, be more conservative, and then to the next downturn, which will inevitably happen, look to potentially add more leverage and become more opportunistic. And by the way, it tells you something that people are looking at double-digit returns for core as being sort of the norm, which it probably shouldn't be. Let me echo Anton's thoughts. If you look at the incremental return of value-added, which is not pure greenfield developmental, but value-added, so the halfway house between core and outright greenfields, you have a very modest premium, particularly versus history. And that reflects the stepping out on the risk curve, Bernie, as you mentioned earlier. It reflects the tremendous amount of flows that have moved into that space as investors look for higher returns. And if there's any one space that looks like it's overvalued relatively, as well as absolutely, this would be the space within real estate. Now, there is a little bit of a debate what constitutes value added, how far out the risk spectrum should we call value added versus development. And we'll be tightening up that assumption with the 2019 set of assumptions. But I think it's fair to say that there's been much more of a compression in potential returns in the step out of the real estate spectrum than there has been versus core and even developmental. Sure. And I think definitions matter here, importantly. And we're not saying that all value-add or opportunistic investing is bad. And clearly, there are opportunities, particularly elsewhere in the developed markets. Europe comes to mind. But even here in the U.S., I think there are some shorter-cycle value-add strategies whether it's short cycle development or redevelopment, taking on leasing risk that can make sense at this point in the cycle. But the point about downside protection is a good one. I think that's a nice segue to talking about infrastructure, uh, another real asset category, an area of clear need for capital investment here in the U.S. and globally, a topic that is frequently making headlines, depending on the news cycle. Now, Tony, your outlook for long-term global infrastructure equity returns is unchanged versus last year, relatively attractive, six and a quarter percent. How would you categorize the overall environment from an economic, political, regulatory perspective for infrastructure investing these days? Well, very much like real estate, the trophy properties are expensive by almost any standard. I think the good news is that we really haven't hit stride with a new regulatory cycle. We have a tremendous amount of capital that needs to be brought into the space, particularly in the United States, and the regulators have been loath to increase returns to attract that capital. So that's on the come. That's a positive. But for the most part, we have a bid-up market. By the way, the six and a quarter percent number represents leverage inherent in that, as opposed to our real estate numbers do not. So when you're looking across those segments, if you will, one's levered and one's not levered. But six and a quarter percent still has that attraction for yield-oriented investors, particularly stable yield-oriented investors. That six and a quarter percent is a pretty attractive number, even though it's expensive by historical standards. Again, the good news is that there potentially is a regulatory cycle in front of us, a positive cycle, again, to attract new capital. And that is one reason, again, that investors should probably stay tuned for this space. Yeah. And Anton, I think it's interesting that 
The infrastructure number in our long-term capital market assumptions is global in nature, as opposed to having a U.S. infrastructure target a European one. And in fact, most of the strategies in the marketplace are global in nature. Is the promise of more U.S. infrastructure investment and capital activity going to deliver in the near term, or is that more of an evolution that is going to come gradually rather than a revolution? Sadly, it's going to be evolutionary. I think the muni market, which is the number one source of funding for a lot of infrastructure projects, continues to probably play the key role. But I agree with Tony that we're going to continue to see private capital get injected into more and more projects in the U.S. What's exciting to me about infrastructure is that very few people own it in the Americas. It is predominantly an Anglo-Saxon, Australian, and U.K., investment. And it's definitely something that I think collectively we are paying a lot closer attention to that clients are allocating more money to. And I kind of agree with Tony, six and a quarter sounds very reasonable. And frankly, I would argue that if you're earning double digits or higher numbers, something at the end of the day, it's most likely not infrastructure. You know, if you're thinking of your water company or your sewer company, if you're thinking that they're making double digit returns, you're probably going to think twice about what you're paying for your water bill. So we've got to remember <laughs> what infrastructure truly is and represents for all of us as individuals as well. Right. I mean, that six and a quarter, as Anton mentioned, is going to be the recipient of future flows. So you're going to probably bid up prices a little bit further because six and a quarter with relatively modest leverage is attractive versus what your equity assumption is globally, what your fixed income assumption is globally. Uh, and so, again, that real asset story being marginally more attractive than your public market options seems to hold true again in this space. What about other kinds of real asset categories on the horizon, Anton? We don't have in the long-term capital market assumptions, for example, the broad transport market. Think of it as moving infrastructure. Well, look, I think just like private credit became a more accepted global asset class, we are definitely seeing trends of broader assets that are leased back assets or becoming a bigger and bigger portion of certain markets, right? So if you think of in the airline industry or the shipping industry, the train industry, all those assets are slowly becoming asset classes and they look like real assets because they have long-term leases associated with them. And we are spending a lot of time looking at those assets because they act a little bit like infrastructure as well as real estate in an environment where people are looking for income as well as inflation protection. And I think particularly in a regulatory environment where the banks who have been the primary capital providers to those kind of players in the past are usually European banks have been under a lot of regulatory pressure That's to correct. reduce lending to those kind of categories. Yeah. And I think opens up a new opportunity for long-term capital providers. Definitely. Commodities, Tony, maybe wrapping up our real assets slash alternatives categories. Very little changed in the building blocks of your forecast. The result is exactly the same as last year. A long-term return of three and three quarters. Again, 150 basis point premium over what we're projecting for U.S. inflation. Is the turnaround from the bottoming of the commodity super cycle slowing down? Bernie, commodities certainly are my favorite category to talk about since most people find it very controversial. Forecasting any commodity over any period of time has always proven difficult, but I think our methodology will stand the test of time. And no, the new capital cycle has not been abrogated. It's just 
put on hold last year as a result of the shale boom and the lack of supply discipline that we've seen last year as well as this year. But in fact, capital expenditures are far below the necessity to keep up with demand over the longer term. And in fact, we are seeing in the case of international oil companies and their government counterparts, a real lack of capital expenditures to maintain the current supply, let alone match future demand. So really what we had was a pause in the commodity cycle last year, again, occasioned by oil supply. And uh, this year we are seeing demand exceed most people's expectations. And together with the supply discipline that OPEC has, even with the lack of supply discipline that U.S. shale has, we are seeing demand overtake supply across many different categories. And so we are back on our real rate of return above inflation assumption that you mentioned. If there's going to be some disruption and we get a lot of pushback on particularly carbon usage, whether it's electric vehicles or whether it's alternative power, I think if you look at those assumptions, they are growing quite quickly, but off of a very low base. And so simple compounding says it's going to grow quite substantially over a 10-year period of time, but not enough to bend the trajectory of returns that we project until much later in the 10-year-plus term of the capital markets assumptions. Maybe zooming out to the big picture, Anton, we've got allocations on the rise to alternatives, both given the challenges that investors have in the more traditional parts of their portfolio, but also given good comparative and absolute return expectations from alternatives. I wonder what's next for the alternatives asset class. And in the work that I do with investors on portfolio design, we're seeing more and more investors asking for a bit more science and less art in their portfolio construction within alternatives. Alternatives evolving from a best ideas bucket. Do I like this particular strategy at this particular point in time to really a foundational allocation that needs to play a key long-term strategic role in the portfolio? Are you seeing that as well, bringing the same kind of sophisticated solutions-oriented conversations. Definitely. And I would go a step further. I think a lot of this is actually growing as people's passive allocations have grown. The usage of alternatives has been a nice complement to a number of those passive allocations. It's been an interesting barbell. And I do think that you know, look, we haven't had inflation for a very long time. And as people's concerns around unemployment rates falling in the United States and in other parts of the world, oil prices rising as inflation potentially is a new risk that people haven't focused on in probably in over two decades. Some of these asset classes, the real assets, whether it's infrastructure, real estate is becoming very topical. I think since we are late stage in the growth cycle globally, the notion of being in private markets whether it be equity or in credit, allows clients to hold on to their assets through a cycle and sort of prevents behavioral finance from taking over. We're seeing a lot of these elements become analyzed much more from a mathematical standpoint and those things being used, whether it's through alternative beta factors and things like that to really solidify people's portfolios in anticipation, at least at a minimum of rising rates, but potentially even to shock absorb or able to absorb the shock of a downturn globally or some geopolitical risk that may come out. And I'd say that is a 
very much a theme of the day with our institutional clients who actually have fairly sizable allocations. And we're seeing this increase as well with a number of our individual clients as well over time. Well said. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Thank you, Bernie. Bernie, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes or on our website, recorded on May 21st, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, 
and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Canto Local Finance Bureau, financial instruments firm number 330. In Korea by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.